Um, we're in the book of Romans this morning. And so we're in the New Testament. So we have the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, followed by the great book on the rapid expansion of the church, the book of Acts, followed by the highly doctrinal book and very rich book, the book of Romans. So we're going to read from Romans 16, uh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, and we're going to read through verse um, 25. So what we're doing this morning now is we're picking up on the series that we began last week on evangelism. And remember, if you were here last week, that we broached the question, just what is evangelism uh, anyway? And we looked at evangelism and we addressed that question from the standpoint of the ministry of Jesus. And we saw that evangelism basically is a verbal witness primarily a verbal witness, bearing verbally witness to the king and the kingdom. That is, we, we bear witness to the world of the ruling presence and the saving power and the renewing power of Jesus in the world. The Bible calls that good news. We also looked a little bit last week, again, on the basis of the ministry of Jesus Christ, at what we call the extension of evangelism, or the arm evangelism, and that is caring for the needs of others, noticing those needs, developing a heart of compassion, reaching out to needy individuals, and also praying that the Lord would use us and use others to bring in what the, Jesus calls the harvest. Okay? Now, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the the, some of the really fundamental challenges that we face in the evangelistic task. But we're also going to end on the note of encouragement that the Lord, through us, is able to transcend those challenges and continue to usher people in to the kingdom of God. So, with that having been said, I want to draw your attention to Romans 1, verse 16, for the Apostle Paul writes, I am not ashamed, the Apostle Paul himself, a convert to the Christian faith, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The chapter continues, we're just going to end our reading at that point, and we're going to be dealing with uh, verses 16 through 25 this morning as we consider, once again, the challenges that we face in the evangelistic task. And I'm going to assume this morning, if you claim the name of Christ and you have been a Christian for any amount of time, that you have 
personally experienced some of those challenges. Frankly, I don't know how someone could even call themselves a Christian if they've never verbally bore witness to Jesus, never even spoke a simple word. You don't need to be a PhD to do that. You just need to understand the basics of the gospel, and most of all, you have to have a burden in your heart to do that. And if you've done that, again, you face various challenges. And, and uh, those challenges, um, as we're going to see, arise deep within a person, but they are expressed on the outside of the person by sometimes some of the reactions that we receive to the, <laughs> to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus. And maybe you've experienced some of these things yourselves. Um, some of those reactions. I, I find that some of the most severe reactions occur with people that you know best, and people that you love the most. It may be a son or a daughter who's not walking in the faith, or it may be a mom or dad, maybe a friend or whatever, or a co-worker. And you speak a little thing about Jesus there, and, and they're in your face. You wish it wasn't so, but it's the case. Sometimes there's hostility. Most of the time what there is is just kind of like, eh, you know, bland indifference, shrugging of the shoulders. Sometimes I've found this is kind of a, a, a patronizing spirit where you just get a sense, yeah, you're listening, but you're not really. You're just being kind. Sometimes followed by a condescending spirit. A few words like, well, you know, <laughs> that's good for you, but, you know. Maybe it's time for you to grow up, stuff like that. Ah, there's, there's challenges. Where do we expect that? We see those challenges in the, in, the, in the Bible, you know, as the gospel's going out into the world. So we shouldn't be surprised at that. But the question that we're dealing with this morning is this. Where in the world do those challenges come from? Why do they come? Where do they come from? And, and what's really going on deep inside a person that causes them to react in a way that is contrary to the, to the good news that's given to them. Well, that's what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. And what we're going to do on this passage, we're not going to be able to cover every word and every phrase, but I'm going to give you a general sense of this passage to reveal the challenges. What I want to do this morning is I want to focus, first and foremost, on the basic theology of this passage, and then I'm just going to, for the sake of time, I'm going to draw two conclusions, two applicatory conclusions, and also, uh, with it, words of encouragement. Okay? Now... Uh, if you have your Bible open to the passage, I want to draw your attention to it. Let's begin with verse 16. The Apostle Paul, again himself, a convert to the Christian faith. And if you don't know his story, you'll find it in the book of Acts chapter 9. It is a phenomenal story. But he writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you take a look at the wording there, he begins with what we call the gospel. You know, sometimes people on the outside hear the Christian talk about the gospel. What's a gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus. It's the good news of the ruling presence and the saving power of Jesus in the world. And it goes out to all those who believe. The gospel is only the good news, and Jesus is only good news if you receive it by faith, if you embrace it in faith. And the Bible teaches us, and it alludes to it here as well, is that when, when you and I humble ourselves to the point where we embrace the good news of Jesus, actually receive two things. Number one, receive a new position. We need, receive a new standing with God. Because the Bible says that our sins are 
For a lot of people, it's no big deal. For God, it's a big deal because God is a holy and a just God. So when you live in your sin, unrepentantly, and you don't embrace the Messiah Jesus in faith, what those sins do is they alienate you from God. But when you place your faith in Jesus and his once and for all sacrifice for your sins as a substitute, then what happens is this alienation is bridged, this chasm is bridged, and you're drawn into a reconciled and loving relationship with, with God. So you receive a new standing. You receive a new position. It is one no longer of alienation, but of acceptance. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it not only promises reconciliation, a new position, one of acceptance, but also promises a new power. And that is the power that God works in you through his spirit to put away the old life and to take on a new life. So there's this beautiful passage in the Bible that says this, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation or a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. New position, new power. That's good news. That's good news. But here's the thing. Not everybody accepts the good news. Not everybody likes the good news, which raises the question, why is it? Why is that? You think everybody wants to embrace good news, but that's not the case. What's the problem? Well, the, the problem is in the mind and the problem is in the heart. There's darkness naturally in both places because when you and I are born into this world, we're not born into a good state. We're born with what the Bible calls a sinful, depraved condition. There's blackness, there's darkness in the mind and also in the heart, which leads individuals naturally then to do this with the truth, to do this with the good news of Jesus. The, the, the passage says we, we, we naturally suppress it. Take a look at uh, verse 18. It talks about the wrath of God, and I'll touch on that just a little bit later. But for now, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, notice the word here, suppress the truth. Now, when you and I think about suppression, we think about like holding down, like being in a pool and you got that big plastic ball and you just kind of push it down the water and you know if you let go it's going to pop to the surface. So we think of suppression as holding down. Literally in the original language it's more not just holding down but holding back, hindering, restraining, uh, putting up a barrier, putting up a barricade. Uh, Think of it in this way, if you can imagine this, about less than a mile from our home, every Thursday night, because we live near the police station, every Thursday night, you got two groups that assemble near the police station on a very busy road. You got the BLM people, and you got the, the pro-police people. It's very interesting, it, the, the numbers have gone down somewhat, but man, maybe about a month ago, there was a lot of people, and the cop cars everywhere, and the, the lights are going on, and they're their cars, and so what you have is you have two people on both sides, and to keep them separated, you got these barricades set up, and then you got the police in the middle, so we got no nasty things going on. And when you think, when you think of the barrier or the barricade, you think of that, but here's the thing, it's not somebody else has put up the barricade, the person who doesn't want the good news has set up the barricade. They're self-erected barricades to hold back the truth, the good news, from entering into their minds and into their hearts. Now, as we move on the passage, 
what makes that so particularly sad is not just like, well, I don't want good news even though it is good news because they don't recognize it as such because they're suppressing it. But what's, what's sad about it is that um, the good news of the existence of God and the good news of Jesus is, according to the passage, clear and it is compelling. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God and the gospel of which the Apostle Paul talks about in verse 16 17 is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. They're seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they're without excuse. This is a really important verse. It's a very interesting verse. So here's the idea. The good news goes forth. The good news of God's existence and the gospel of Jesus and the saving power of Jesus is absolutely clear and it's compelling. It's, labeled, or it's placed here in detail in the Bibles that we have before us. It is also in here and also out there. Now, why do I say that? Again, you need to pay special attention to the very wording here. Look again at verse 19. For what can be known about God is, here we talk about the clarity of God's revelation. It is plain to them. I would like to change that rendering. A, a more accurate expression of the word to there would be actually in. What can be known about God is plain in them because God has shown it to them. Here's something we need to understand about the good news and the revelation of, of God, of himself to the world. God, first and foremost, reveals himself inside here. There are two Latin terms that theologians use that, are, that, that I want to bring out, not to sound so smart, but because they help us to understand the significance of the passage. It's the sensus divinitatis and the semen religionis. The sensus divinitatis is the sense of divinity, and the semen religionis is the seed of religion. So that every human being, here and also in the world, knows the truth about God, and that's what they suppress. When people are born into this world very early on, God has that seed of religion in them. He has, he has given them that sense of divinity that is inescapable. That's why, as I have oftentimes said from the pulpit, I think I just said it a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was even last week, I don't know, but in all the times where I've dealt with people who are gradually coming into faith, um, no one of them at the outset as we talk together has claimed to be an atheist. 95% of the time, maybe even like 97, 98% of the time, they say something like, I believe in a God. Or, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. No one of us should be surprised at that because that's that sense of divinity. It's that seed of religion that God has planted. But here's the thing. God has not only revealed himself clearly in us, but he's also clearly uh, revealed himself outside of us. What does the text say? His invisible attributes, his qualities like eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. There's a man named John Calvin a number of years ago who talked about the creation, the world that God made as the theater of the glory of God. So 
everywhere you turn, everywhere you go, there's revelation. There's revelation inside, outside, and the revelation of God here. So when people say, well, you know, I would believe if there's just enough evidence, we're like, you want evidence? It's right here, it's around there, and it's in here. But the problem is, is that you're suppressing the evidence. The problem isn't with God not supplying the evidence. Sorry to say, it's with you. It's with me, naturally. We're dark up here, and we're dark up here, so we naturally suppress it. So that if people do suppress the clear and compelling revelation of God, what does the text say? It says they're without excuse. Literally, in the original, they're without an apologetic. They're like they're in the courtroom. They're without a defense. Yet, people continue to suppress it, hold back the truth. So, what happens if a person does that? What happens if you do that and I do that? What happens if we suppress the truth? You know what happens? This is very interesting. We don't just naturally become atheists and go, I don't, I don't believe in a God. Some people do suppress that point, but it's, it's actually not too many. What most people do is that when they suppress the truth, they seek an alternative religion. They seek an alternative God. Now, why do I say that? Again, take a look at the text. Verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. I want to draw your attention again to the wording here. It's important. Look at the beginning of verse 21. For although they knew God, in the original language, there's a definite article before the word God. So even uh, for although they knew the God, the true God, not just any God, but the true God, right? Because the, the evidence is compelling in them and outside of them. They did not honor him, nor did they give thanks to him. That's a sad thing. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It all seems like uh, you know, kind of ancient language here, but basically uh, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's saying, you know, if you suppress the truth, it's not like you become non-religious or non-spiritual. You just seek substitutes. You just seek alternatives. So he talks about the, the alternatives, claiming to be wise, they exchange the glory of mortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and all that kind of thing. So when you suppress the truth, you do the flip-flop. You exchange the creator for something in the creation. And why do we naturally do that? It's because, again, the seed of religion has been planted in us, and God created us to be worshiping creatures. We all worship something. You know, we all worship someone or something. It's either the true God or it's an alternative or it's a substitute. You know, we have people come here. They're dealing with substitutes, whatever it is. Whatever your heart is attached to, apart from the one true God, that's, that's your object of worship. And that's, that's what we see all around us. And this is our natural tendencies to do that kind of thing. Okay, so we move on. And... Um, I want to I end the passage by saying this, that, you know, if we do that, if we suppress the truth, we move on to substitutes, God doesn't have a neutral reaction to that. It's not like, you know, if we do that, God's kind of like, hmm, 
wringing his hands, he's on the sidelines observing, and he's saying, you know, that's not what I created for you for. I created you to know me and to love me and to serve me and to embrace Christ in faith and know eternal life and all the blessings that come with it. And, and now you're not doing it, you know, and God's just weeping on the sidelines. No. He's angry. He's angry. Right? Remember the passage in verse 18 said, the wrath of God is actually revealed against all those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. People may not like to hear it. That's the passage. You've got to deal with the passage, right? So his wrath goes out. His anger goes out. Again, it's not a neutral reaction. It's like, it's like a wife who discovers that her husband is, is cheating on her. She's not going to have a neutral reaction like, oh, you know, I, I kind of saw that coming. That's, that's unfortunate. No, she's going to be angry, right? She's going to be wrathful. It's like the, that's the, the wrath of God. And here's the thing. When the wrath of God goes forth, it's expressed in a really interesting way. When we think of the wrath of God going forth, we're thinking, oh, people are going to be in trouble. They're going to go to hell. We always think about the future. No, the wrath of God is not, it doesn't, in verse 18, it doesn't say will be revealed. It says it's being revealed. <laughs> we see judgment in our world, in our nation, in people's lives right now. It's not just future, it's, it's now. And there comes a point where if, if people don't turn away from their suppression and their substitutes and turn to the good news, there comes a point, and this is a scary point, there comes a point where God hands them over to their life, hands them over to their suppression, hands them over to their depravity. And that's never good, because that never ends well. Why do I say that? Look at verse 24. Therefore, right, this is all after people exchanging God for another God, another form of word. Verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, again, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, oh, there it is again. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, if you follow the substitutes long enough, God's basically saying, okay, you've committed to that? You want to go in that direction? Go ahead, go in that direction. I'm going to hand you over to it. And let's see where that takes you. And we know where that takes us. It takes us to the exact same place that the prodigal son ended up, right? Ended up in the the pigsty, right? You know this story where son wants to get out of his father's house and the father finally says, okay, you want an early disbursement of the inheritance? You want to go live your life in the world? Fine, go. Interesting thing about that, that passage is that you never get a sense that the dad was arguing with his boy for a long time. That's what happened most of the time. The dad would try to convince his son, now, you know, you really don't want to leave the house yet. No, I know what you're going to do. It's not a good idea. And it, there's no sense of that, but it's probably what went on. Dad says, okay, you want to go. So he gives his son inheritance, and he lives his party lifestyle, blows his inheritance, yada, yada, yada. We hear the story all the time. We see it in the world today. And where does the son end up? Stinking pigsty. Man, you want to flee from God? You want to flee from the father's house? I guarantee you will end up in the pigsty. Eventually. Maybe not now, but you will eventually. And that's not a good place to be. But it can be the place of a new beginning. Because only when you hit rock bottom are you going to say to yourself, like the prodigal son, uh, 
I need to come to my senses. I need to, I need to get back. I need to go to my father's house. So what do we see in the passage? We see that God has clearly revealed himself and the beauty and the blessings of the gospel. People suppress it. Because they suppress it, they seek out substitutes. And if they seek out substitutes long enough, God hands them over to it with all the sorrow and the pain and the emptiness that comes with that. Happy, happy passage, isn't it? But it's reality. Okay? As Christians, we need reality. So, which, which leads us to this point then. This does present serious challenges, right? These are the challenges that we face. The question for us this morning is this. Are they insurmountable challenges? Here's some good news. Short, short word on that is no. Short word on that is no. I want to leave you with two things. Two applications, just two. And two encouragements. Number one... And you may be thinking about a son or daughter right now. You may be thinking about a mom or dad or a friend or what have you. Somebody you know who's just kind of doing this. They're holding back. Here's the thing, though. Though people may deeply, deeply suppress the truth at the moment and the blessings of the gospel, you're never without a point of contact with them. You're, you're never without, if I can put it simply, you're never without a socket in which to plug the cord. What's the socket? The socket's what's, in, as we've seen, inside of them. What's the socket? The socket is outside of them. What's the socket? It's this book. What's the socket? It's your own personal story and the work of God's grace in your own life. There's all kinds of sockets in which to plug the cord of the gospel. So don't be encouraged. And by the way, it's not up for you to change the hearts of people around you. God will do that. Remember what we saw last week? He's the Lord of the harvest. Not you, not me. I could preach on blue in the face. It's only the Spirit of God. It's the Lord of the harvest that's going to make it effective in your life, in my life, anybody's life in this world. Okay? But there's always, there's always sockets which to plug the cord. Therefore, people are never without reach, or out of reach, I should say, for the gospel. That's number one. Number two is that... That, that even though people may deeply suppress the truth, there is hope. And that hope rests very simply in the power and the grace of God that is able to break down the greatest resistance of a human being. A number of you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced that in your own life, either gradually or in a very sudden, a very painful way like the Apostle Paul. But you knew what it was like to be the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter. You knew what it was like to suppress the truth. But God took hold of you and he softened you and he brought you to himself. And if you're here this morning and you're experiencing this yourself, honestly, there's certain forms of suppression, you're kid living a life that you know that God is not pleased with, don't count yourself out. Do not count God out. He's able to do a powerful work. Um, and in the meantime, God says, you know what? Draw near to me. And I will draw near to you. I will. We rest in the power and the grace of God. And I want to give you one example of that, one illustration, and then I want to close in prayer. I think, I think it's a powerful illustration. And it's a true illustration. So I want you to listen just for a few minutes to what I'm going to tell you. A number of you know that um, 
I don't know, month, I forget the timing of it, month, about six weeks ago, something like that, um, I took a trip to where I grew up in Iowa. You should go back there once a year. And I connected with a former uh, professor of mine in college, an English professor, and we connect by way of email. He says, when you come out, I said, he says, I want to do a road trip with you. I said, okay. So we went out there, and he's, he's, he's done a lot of research on um, uh, the Indian people out, especially during the 1800s in the area of the country. And I was very tucked away in northwest Iowa. So he said, we got in the car one time, uh, one day, and he said, um, uh, because it's in very northwest Iowa, he says, we're going to go up into Minnesota. We're going to go up across the river, um, Big Sioux River, into South Dakota. And I says, oh, he says, I'm going to take you to a place called Laverne, Minnesota, Pipesville, Minnesota, and we're going to go to a place called Flandreau, South Dakota. I said, okay. So while we get in the car, we're driving along, and he, he, talks, he talked to me about something that if you grew up in northwest Iowa, you probably heard of this. It's called the Spirit Lake Massacre. It occurred in 1857. Spirit Lake is about, oh, hour, an hour and a half from the place where I was at in Iowa. And in 1857, there were a number, there was a, a tribe among the Sioux Indians that attacked a pioneer family, killed all the family except one girl, 13 years old. Her name was Abby Gardner. So the Indians broke into the house of this pioneer family, shot the dad in the heart, and took the mother and took the two kids, two, two young kids, and clubbed them to death and then scalped them. And this little girl, Abby Gardner, 13, in a sense, as the story goes, she kind of stood there and was, was just standing firm against these Indians and decrying the fact that they were doing this to her family. And the Indians noticed that, and because of her courage, they didn't kill her and scalp her. They kidnapped her and kept her for three months. It was also during a three-day period of time around that time that the pioneer family was killed that the Indians of the Sioux tribes, various Sioux tribes, went on a rampage in southern Minnesota and killed up to 40 pioneers there. So it was, it was pretty much of a slaughter. The Indians knew that the whites would seek retribution, so they fled across the river into South Dakota and kind of set by a place called Flandreau, South Dakota. And it was while there they continued some dirty deeds. They took a 19-year-old girl who was pregnant, they dragged her into a bend of the Sioux River, and it's there where they clubbed her and then they eventually shot her. So the reason why I bring this out is to show the levels of human depravity that we can fall into. Well, the, whites caught, the white people caught word of this, and a few years later, it took a while to process this all, a few years later, is during the time of the Civil War, that they reported what happened to Abraham Lincoln, and they were planning to, to hang up to 300 Indians. Now, that would have been quite a hanging, 300. Abraham Lincoln got a hold of it. It was in the middle of the Civil War. He says, we need to settle this quickly. So hurry up and determine who the main per perpetrators of the slaughter and, and hang them. So they hanged 38 Indians. The rest of these Indians and many others they put on reservations in eastern Iowa, a place called Dubuque, as well as in the state of Nebraska and also in South Dakota. Some missionaries at the time, and there were not many in those parts of the country at the time, thought that they needed to bring the gospel to the Indians, and they went to, they went to the reservations, and a couple reservations, they spoke the gospel to the Indians, and lo and behold, a number of the Indians, a number, many of them became receptive 
to the gospels and the, uh, to the gospel and the whites at the time were wondering oh yeah it's like a prisoner receiving the gospel they change they change because they want to get out well these indians change so they could get white man's land and start farming like the whites so the missionaries observed what happened among the indians this so-called powerful work of god's grace in the indian's life and one missionary wrote this. He said, the circumstances were peculiar, but the whole movement was marvelous. It was like a nation that was born in a day. The Indians desired to be divinely guided, and after a lapsing of many years, we all say that it was a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. Now, one final quick thing. This professor and I got to Flandreau, South Dakota, there's still a number of Indians and whites living together around that part of the country. And he said, come with me now a mile north of Landrieu. And he took me to a little church and a graveyard. In the Midwest, you still have that somewhat. You have little grave graveyards and then you got a church. And it was a beautiful day and it was sunny. And we got out of the truck that we're in and we started walking around the graves. As we walked around the graves, I noticed that they were almost all Sioux Indians. And when you look at graves, I took pictures of this, you have a bunch of words in the Sioux language and underneath you have their English names and there's, only, and there's, there's one grave with an Indian and he became a Presbyterian minister. And then we went to this little church. It's the oldest continuing Protestant church in all of South Dakota. And it was on a little hill and then we looked down and we looked at that bend in the river and he said, that's the bend where that 19-year-old pregnant girl was clubbed and was shot. He said, look what God did in the life of those savages, those slaughterers. Isn't that something? Murderers, like the Apostle Paul, became Christians. The grace of God overpowered the suppression and the resistance of human beings. So, it was all a beautiful thing to behold in that little graveyard that day. So are there challenges to evangelism? Sure, you heard about them this morning. For there's no challenge that is so great. The power and the grace of God cannot overcome it. You and I are testimony of that. And so are many others. And so we proceed forward with our evangelistic task with confidence, asking that the Lord of the harvest would continue to bring in those who are his. Yeah? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's a beautiful thing to preach grace, to know that in and of ourselves, given who we are, with all the darkness of mind and heart and all the suppression that we are so prone to, given the fact that by nature we're all prodigals, to think, oh God, that your grace and power be manifest in our lives, that is amazing. That is amazing. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. We pray that our lives reflect a change of heart that only you can bring about. And we do what you've called us to do, and that is to worship you, to love you, and enjoy you all the days of our lives. Father, help us to go forward from this place with confidence, knowing that you are able to do great things. And we trust that you will through the life of this church and our own witness. God, grant a blessing upon our own witness here, we pray. Do that, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.